I hope that you're confident in heading on that upward way as that song declares. Would you join me as we continue in worship now, turning to God's word, but would you pray as we do? Father God, you are good and you have revealed yourself all sufficiently to us in the pages of the scriptures, your word, the Bible. God, as we have sung truth from your word, we have prayed truth from your word, we have given in obedience to your word. Lord God, now as we turn to study this word, Lord, we pray that your spirit that inspired this word would apply it to our lives. Father God, would you remove from our minds the things that distract, Lord, the, the burdens, the discouragements, the uncertainties and fears of this next week. Father, would you allow this time to be one in which we see you God, are ushered into your presence so that we might be reminded of just how temporal all that is around us is. That we are pressing on an upward way. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And so those many barriers that might seem overwhelming in the midst of a week, fade in light of the God who is omnipotent. Father, would you give us a vision of that beauty this morning? In the pages of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, you'd open them with me and find the book of Exodus in chapter 3. To date, in our study of this great Old Testament story, we've acknowledged that while the narrative clearly recounts God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt, Exodus is also the record of God's revelation of himself to his people. And to this point in our series, if you've been with us, we've noted several truths regarding the God of the Bible based upon our examination of his interactions with a man named Moses, and today we continue with our study in order that just as Moses was set straight, so to speak, regarding his misconceptions, his, his false presuppositions of God, so might we be, and therefore I invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning, Exodus chapter 3, and we'll begin with verse 18, for it's here that God continues speaking to Moses, saying, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and to say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor, and any woman living in her house, for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so, you will plunder the Egyptians. And may God bless the public reading of his word this morning. In case you weren't with us last week or two weeks before that, or the week before that, let me just quickly remind you of the setting for our text this morning. Midian, Moses is in the Midianite desert. He's barefoot before a burning bush that's speaking these words to him. Moses is currently a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro, who is a priest 
in Midian, and he's been there for some 40 years. It's been 40 years since he last set foot in Egypt where following his murder of an Egyptian man, Moses had fled justice. He'd, he'd left his old life of luxury behind, and he'd taken a new identity in the desert. Seemingly content with this new setup as a shepherd, Moses finds himself at the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, and he spies this burning bush. And upon closer inspection, he hears it speak to him. And then in the dialogue that ensues, God reveals himself to Moses. Now, to this point in our study, we've seen God reveal his presence, his ability to speak and to see, and the fact that he makes promises. And we've only managed to get to verse 18. And it's in verse 18 that I believe we encounter a further self-revelation of the God of the Bible, and the one that's going to serve as our first point for this morning, which is this. God knows the future. God knows the future. In the very first words of verse 18, God informs Moses that the elders will listen to you. The elders will listen to you. This is a statement of absolute certainty regarding a future event. The elders will listen to you. Not the elders might or the elders could, but the elders will listen to you. And by this phrase, will listen, is communicated the positive reception of Moses' message. What God is promising here was the certainty that Israel's leadership would receive Moses' words as authoritative along with accepting all that they entail. Now, it would take far too long for us this morning to, to consider all of the variables that this statement accounted for. However, just so that we might appreciate the weight that this carried, consider the fact that Moses has never met the elders. In fact, it's likely that he didn't even know who the elders were because prior to his escape from Egypt, he'd been living in Pharaoh's house and thus under his authority. Second, and just to counter any that might suggest that Moses may have curried favor with the elders through his anti-Egyptian sentiments so powerfully expressed when he murdered a man. Remember the response of the Hebrew who made, uh, that he later confronted for fighting with a fellow Hebrew? Who made you ruler and, and judge over us, right? So clearly, Moses' coming to the aid of his compatriot here was not well received, and thus he wouldn't be returning to Egypt as an exiled hero like Napoleon. No, you know, next to family, who Moses hasn't seen in over 40 years, no one at this stage seems to like the man. And third, the Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. They have nothing but memories, distant memories at that of Canaan. None of their leaders have even been to, Israel, to, to Canaan and, and the land. So all they know is Egypt, it's home. And now this guy shows up with a message from Yahweh promising them freedom, which, oh, by the way, he received while he was all alone in a desert herding sheep from a bush. I mean, if you were an elder this morning, just take a moment. If you were an elder of Israel, how do you think you would have responded? I mean, seriously, if you were entrusted with the leadership of a people, an entire nation, could you have in good conscience responded favorably to Moses? And you have to remember that at this point, the man doesn't even have precedent in his favor. God has never before revealed himself or his will in this way. And yet God informs Moses, the elders will listen to you. Church, the God of the Bible knows the future. And specifically, he knows people's actions. Yahweh knows what men and women will do. And friends, there have been a great many theologians throughout the years who have sought to explain this truth away. 
for these people, God knows all, but not exactly. Meaning in regard to the future, he, he knows everything that we might do. But he can't possibly know exactly what we will do, for even we don't know this until we do it, right? And thus, God does know the future in a sense, but he can't know it exactly. And there, there remains the human variable, and this he doesn't control, and therefore he can't know precisely. Now, as soothing as this may sound to those who are keen to argue for the sovereignty of the human soul, it's hard to square with Scripture, isn't it? You know, as, as nice as it might be to say that God only knows the infinite number of possible things that we might do, but that he cannot know what we actually will do, thus securing for ourselves a freedom of our will over which God has no say, how can we justify this belief with the phrase, the elders of Israel will listen to you? What I believe is clear from God's words to Moses is the truth that he knows the future. And he knows exactly what people will do. There's, there's no other way to understand these words than the fact that God knew exactly what the elders would do. They would listen to Moses. Thus, God knows people's actions, and he knows people's attitudes. And this isn't merely a truth that naturally follows from the previous point. No, this is, this is the clear statement of Scripture given us in verse 19. We're following God's direction to the elders. We read, but I know, this is God speaking, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. God informs Moses of the attitude that Pharaoh will exhibit. This is where, as one theologian describes it, God showed his full knowledge of people's character and thinking processes by predicting that Pharaoh would remain stubborn. God didn't only know how the elders would respond to Moses' liberation message. He also knew the attitude that would be displayed by their oppressor, Pharaoh. Yahweh knew the sentiments of Pharaoh's heart. Isn't that amazing? Now, I can't explain how God knew this, but I can tell you that this isn't the only instance in the Scriptures where God's knowledge of people's attitudes is expressed. As the Lord prepared His people Later on in this story, to enter the promised land, he informed them through Joshua, who was their leader at the time, of what their attitude would be regarding his laws and of their subsequent failure to keep his covenant. And then later, when we get to the book of Kings, we read of God's promised judgment on King Jeroboam and how the people would respond, that is, their heart's attitudes to the news of his son's death. And then, during the reign of King Jehoiakim, God told his prophet Ezekiel that he would make his head as hard as the hardest stone. Why? Because the house of Israel is not willing to listen. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. God knew the attitudes of his people's hearts and what they would be. And church, this knowledge isn't limited to the Old Testament because we know in the New Testament, Jesus' words to his disciples regarding the attitudes of those to which or to whom he, either he was sending them out. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus promises that all men will what? Hate you because of me. And then in what is probably the most familiar expression of this knowledge in the New Testament, Jesus informed Peter of his threefold denial, didn't he? Which Peter in that moment, the present, vehemently rejects. But then as we know, shortly thereafter, he fulfills, doesn't he? So the scriptures clearly establish that God knows people's attitudes. And church, I just want you to, for a moment, let the significance of this sink in. The fact that the God of the Bible knows the future, both 
people's actions and their attitudes is frightening. This is frightening because it means that there is nothing that is hidden from his sight. He knows us better than we even know ourselves because for the very same reason that liberal theologians have sought to reject this truth, that is the fact that at times we don't even know what our actions or attitudes will be until we've acted or expressed them. If God knows these things, then he knows that which we don't even know about ourselves. That's a, that's a frightening thought for it means that we can't pretend to be that which we're not. We can't deceive or, or con God into believing that somehow we're better than we really are. That's a frightening reality. And it's humbling. It's humbling because if God knows us in this way and yet still declares in his word, I love you. How incredible is the love of God. This is a love like no other love, isn't it? It's a love that is independent of our actions and our attitudes. That's a love that is contingent solely upon God, not us. Because as we've just pointed out, there are things about ourselves we can't even know, but God does. He can and he does. Thus, we, can, we could say like Peter did, Lord, I love you. I'll never forsake you. And then hours later, we can call down curses upon ourselves. We don't know the man. If God's love was like our love, that's a love that we extend, dependent upon certain sentiments being reciprocated. If God's love were like that, then we could, we could feel justified in being loved, couldn't we? We could believe that we merit God's love, but since God's love is independent of our attitudes and actions, then we can simply receive his love. That's humbling. God's knowledge of the future is frightening. It's humbling, and it's comforting, church, for the very same reason that God's knowledge is frightening. I believe it is eternally comforting because it means that God knows exactly what he's getting in a relationship with me and in a relationship with you. God's love isn't, isn't based upon the now and all that he can see in this moment alone, which is how all of our relationships are governed. And for those of you who are married this morning, I mean, you can attest to this. Ladies, you know this truth. Is your husband this morning, for those of you who are married, is he the same man today that he was when you married him? And we're not talking about his name. I hope he hasn't changed it. His date of birth and other non-essentials. No, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about his personality, his quirks, his behaviors. Is he the same man? And guys, is your wife, is she the same woman? And the answer, I hope you agree with me, is no. No, we change. You know, and just as a side, for those who are dating or first, you know, second years into marriage, but when, when we expect our spouse to remain the same, then we set ourselves up for disappointment, don't we? Because change is a part of life. And the challenge of marriage, or at least one of the many challenges of marriage, is learning to love one another as God loves, as Christ loves his church, the bride. That means that we love regardless, but we don't make concessions to that which is true. We love in spite of shortcomings, failings. We love as God loves us. That's how comforting, church, to know that God knows us today, he knew us yesterday, he knows us tomorrow, and yet he still loves us. There's no other love like that, is there? The God of the Bible knows the future. And second, the God of the Bible is selective. The God of the Bible is selective. Would you look back with me to the middle there of verse 18? This is where God informs Moses of what he and Israel's elders are to say to Pharaoh. Verse 18, the Lord 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. I believe that this designation, the God of the Hebrews, is of incredible significance, both in what it communicated to Pharaoh and in what it declares then for us today. And so let's, let's first consider what this moniker meant to Pharaoh. For Pharaoh, God's designating himself as the God of the Hebrews made clear that Yahweh was in no way related to Egypt's pantheon. No way related to Egypt's pantheon. And that's a fact that's borne out in the plagues that came later. As, as those of you who are familiar with the story know, each of the plagues, those that followed that came upon Egypt, did so as a display of God's power over a specific Egyptian deity. And thus in this description, I believe that God wanted Pharaoh to know that he, God, was unlike any God that Pharaoh was familiar with. He was the God of the Hebrews. The God of the Hebrews. And do you notice here how God doesn't introduce himself as the God of Israel? This is a, a name that Pharaoh may not have known or he could have become confused by. Rather, he uses, God uses a term of clear association, Hebrews. The God the elders, along with Moses, was representing was the God of the people that he, that's Pharaoh, was oppressing. Yahweh was unlike any God in Egypt and unknown to all but the Hebrews. And Pharaoh later bears testimony to this very fact in chapter 5 and verse 2, where following Moses and Aaron's first confrontation, Pharaoh declares, who is the Lord? That is, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. Thus, I believe that by identifying himself as the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh was declaring his otherness to all the other gods, little g, of Egypt, and proclaiming his love for a select group of people, that is, the sons and daughters of Israel, the Hebrews. And Emmanuel, this identification with and love for a specific people by God, that's the story of the Bible, isn't it? Is it not? God's selection of Abram, recorded in Genesis 12, describes God coming and promising Abram that I will make who? You, right? I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through who? You, Abram. The Bible is the story of the God who chose Abram and his descendants to be the means through which he would bless all nations. Yahweh is unlike any other God, and thus he introduced himself to Pharaoh in such a way as to guarantee there could be no confusion. Now what about us today? What does this, this name, the God of the Hebrews, mean to us? And I believe that we find our answer explicated in Romans chapter 9. Now we don't have time to turn there this morning or to examine all that I believe the Apostle Paul addresses here, but, but his purpose, I believe, in chapter 9 of Romans is to articulate the God of the Hebrews' sovereign choice. That's as he, the, that's God, chose this single man, Abraham, and adopted him and his descendants to be his people forever. But, but not even all of Abraham's descendants were chosen, as Paul explains regarding Jacob and Esau. If you remember, yet, Paul writes, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's sovereign purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then, 
Paul, anticipating our reactions to the apparent injustice of such selection, Paul continues, what should we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all, exclamation point. For he says to Moses, the character we're looking at today, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend upon man's desire or effort, but on what? God's mercy. Emmanuel, the fact that God describes himself as the God of the Hebrews had nothing whatsoever to do with the Hebrews themselves. God didn't choose them because they were in some way deserving. He didn't have to pick the Hebrews. He didn't have to select anyone for that matter because he's God. He just is. He needs nothing. His existence is entirely independent of anything, as we've already concluded when we studied the statement, I am who I am. God just is. God wants for nothing. He alone is. And yet here he designates himself as the God of the Hebrews, and he does so so that as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he shows his desire to choose them over Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God chose one man to be the father of many nations. Why? Because as Paul said, because God is merciful and compassionate. And church, God graciously extends this very compassion and mercy, this blessing today to all who will believe in the promised descendant of Abraham who is Jesus Christ. This is the grace and mercy of God. So the God of the Bible knows our future. He is selective and he is all-powerful. Our third point this morning. Theologians describe this attribute of God as his omnipotence and they define it as his ability to do all his holy will. And here in our text, I believe that we see this power or this ability demonstrated in at least two ways. And so would you look back with me now to verse 20 there in Exodus chapter 3. It's, it's here that God, having prepared Moses for Pharaoh's obstinance, he declares this, So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. In the first way in which I believe we see God's omnipotence here is in the fact that he can perform wonders. He can perform wonders. Now, at this point, we don't know all that God has in store for the Egyptians. And so if we're going simply off of the language here, we may know that God can perform wonders. That's how, if you have an NIV, that's how it renders the original language here. And while I agree that this term clearly communicates the sense of awe, that all will feel as, as they witness what God can do, I personally prefer the Holman's offering of, of miracles here. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. I prefer the word miracle here because I believe that this term better captures the sense of supernatural. When I hear the word wonder, my, my go-to isn't the supernatural. Well, maybe yours is this morning and that's fine, but mine isn't. So I prefer the word miracle because I believe when I think of miracles, I think of that which can have no other explanation than the supernatural. God did it. God must have done it, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. And thus, in total contrast to the movie that was recently made, or recent's a relative term, but there was a movie made called Exodus, Gods and Kings. It was this very story of God's people leaving Egypt. And in this movie, they portrayed all of the plagues as being consistent with creation and therefore having an origin in the created order. They could be explained through science. <laughs> what the scriptures describe for us 
was supernatural. It was miraculous, irreproducible. And friends, it's no surprise that in our day and age, this demonstration of God's omnipotence has been one of the most criticized and one of the most quickly dismissed of all. And beginning back in the 18th century, Enlightenment thinkers began to question the nature and the veracity of, of miracles. And as science took the place of religion and faith became disassociated from reason, the miracle stories of Scripture were the first things to be called into question. For how can we believe in something that we can't repeat? And the whole basis of science is to prove reality through experimentations, correct? And, and that which cannot be proven must therefore be false. And while there are massive flaws in such reasoning, and they've been established such that no self-respecting scientist today would dismiss the miraculous simply on the basis of its irreproducibility. For the most part, this is sadly what is still taught in our schools, isn't it? That's why I believe it remains the predominant view of our society. But church, I would argue that we encounter God's miraculous work on a daily basis. And we have a host of specific examples in our own church to this extent. I mean, we have witnessed God provide healing, have we not? We've watched God provide work, provide housing, provide protection for us. Now, I'll admit that these haven't been necessarily as public in their demonstration as were the plagues in Egypt, but I would argue that they're no less the miracles of God. They're no less the power of God being displayed in the people of God. God has demonstrated His omnipotence in our lives. And I would challenge you to, to look back over the, the past few months of your life or the past six months, year, and look at those moments in which you may have attributed what took place to chance. Wow, that was lucky. And yet, I'll give you just a perfect example, something simple, something small. But this past Friday, I went on a bike ride with my girls. And we were on our bicycles. Dad was the one who wasn't wearing a helmet. I was made aware of that fact by my two daughters who were very protected and safe. And as we went around the corner, we heard this crash less than five seconds after we turned. And a limb had fallen out of the tree right where we were. We looked at one another and said, praise the Lord. That could have been on one of our heads, and only one whose head would have been affected directly would have been dad's. And so we praised God, and we rode away. But we could have been, oh, wow, what luck. Good things. We weren't there. Man, what chances are that happening? God is sovereign. He is in control, and he demonstrates his omnipotence by doing miracles. A second way that God performs his omnipotence or demonstrates it is by changing hearts. And friends, I believe, this is my opinion, but I believe this is the greatest miracle of all. And I want us to see it together as it's recorded in verse 21, which reads this. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Isn't that amazing? God promises to change the attitudes, the hearts, that is, of the Egyptians towards the Israelites such that a people who had previously willfully participated in their slaughter, their infant slaughter and suppression through slavery would now support them, not begrudgingly, but with enthusiasm. I mean, that word that's used there in the original rendered make favorably disposed, it's one that's occurred and is used only in Moses' writings. And he uses it very tellingly earlier 
in Genesis 39 and verse 21 where he describes the jailer's attitude towards Joseph. Where, If you recall that story, the jailer troubles himself, we're told, with nothing in his prison. Absolute confidence in how Joseph will run things for him. He takes his hands off the reins and turns him loose because of the favor that he has for Joseph. And so, church, what I believe God is describing here in Exodus 3 is a heart transformation and one that is sincere because you notice how it's demonstrated. Notice how it's demonstrated. Verse 22 tells us that every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. In this verse, God informs Moses of his great power to change hearts. And in this instance, God is taking men and women who were enemies of his people and transforming their sentiments such that they, these slave masters, will become supply masters. And they will provide the Israelites with all that they need for their exodus out of Egypt. Friends, the God of the Bible still changes hearts. And apart from his omnipotence displayed in this manner, we would all be lost. For we're all as those Egyptians. We're all enemies of God. There's not a one of us who's born in a right relationship with God who's good. And as the scriptures make clear, there's none righteous, not one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good, not even one. And the Apostle Paul then went on to describe the hopelessness of our situation to a group of men and women who met in Ephesus. And he said this, as for you, meaning all of us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings, the, the desires, the ugly hungers of our hearts. Our sinful natures followed those desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. In other words, our hearts were enemies of God. We hated God. We did all that we could to oppose Him, but because of His great love for us, His mercy, His compassion, God, who is rich in these things, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions. How are we saved? Paul says, it's by grace you're saved. Friends, God and God alone has the power to change hearts. Now, we can, we can argue that that's not true. We like to think that we can change things. But if that's the truth for you, then just try giving up your vice. If it's sweets, say, okay, I'll give up sweets or jerky for me. Or whatever else is your, your heart's desire. Say, oh, yeah, I'll give it up. You know, we like to say, I've got this. I, I can do this. I can quit. Or I can begin Whenever I want, I'll just get through this season and then I'll pick right back up. That's just how my life is. I can change my heart, but church, that belief is a lie. And it's one that's been whispered to men and women from the very beginning. We cannot change our hearts. Only God can. And he does so by his grace through the gospel of his son. This is the God of the Bible. He doesn't save us based upon what we have or or what we may do. Why? Because he knows the future. He knows just how broken and unreliable we are. How frightened and unsure. How weak and inconsistent. And yet he chooses to save us. Why? Because of his great love. Because of his rich mercy. Because of his incomparably great compassion. And his endless grace. God saves because he's God. 
And he does so, as Paul declares, through the heard word of his gospel. And friends, this morning, we've all heard the gospel. We heard it from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15, the summary of the gospel, that the God of the Bible, recognizing the severity of our situation, loved us so much that he sent a rescuer. He came himself. God the Son sent Jesus, like us in every way, but without sin. And Christ died on a cross to pay the penalty we deserved. He died to set us free, but then he rose from the dead so that we no longer need to fear that enemy, do we? Why? Because Jesus has given us life. So do you know this God? Have you experienced his saving power? Because if you have, then you know all about firsthand experience, the God of the Bible's omnipotence. And it follows that you, like Moses, have been given the task of sharing the good news of this rescue plan with others. But if you don't, then this morning as we close, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that God, by his grace, might lead you to recognize your sinfulness, that you are a sinner, that you are lost. And you might express that in different ways, but I want to pray that God would allow you to see the reality and that he might lead you to believe in Jesus as he has revealed himself in the scriptures to be God the Son and that you might confess him as your Lord and begin following after him. And So would you pray with me to these ends as we close? Father God, you are... God, we like to think that we're, we are in control of our lives. We like to think that we are the ones determining the directions of our lives. But Father, you, those, none of the things that we decide are made decisions made in a vacuum. Lord, every decision we make is, is influenced. And Lord God, we recognize that only you save as your spirit makes us aware of our need for saving. And Lord, I thank you that you have done that omnipotent work in many lives. But Father, if there is one today, any today, who have never experienced that grace, Lord, might this be that day. Might having heard of your great grace and of what you did for us and of being able to relate to the fallenness, the brokenness, the, the, the fear, the unknown, the worry, that you provide healing and hope Lord, that having heard those things, that they might recognize that's what they need and that it only comes from you. They can't change, but only you can change them and that they would desire that, Lord, and, and that they would then desire to begin following after you and all that that means. And God, if there are those this morning that feel that way, then as we stand in a moment and sing, I would love to talk with them further. Lord, that they might find me down front or, or ask another would beside them because, God, we don't want to leave without having had the opportunity to have answered questions that we might have. How? How does this work? Lord God, would you, would you do the work that only you can do? Thank you that you are a God that has extended this grace to all who will believe. And we pray, Lord, that there would be those today who would for your glory. In Jesus' name.